It's really no big secret that having children involved in the performing arts can have a major impact on them in school and out of school. Well, today's guests are training some of these young artists in a fine arts conservatory down in Miami, Florida, called Moonami Productions. Monica Roselle and Priscilla Blanco join me to discuss their important work and the creative home they provide their students. There's never a moment where they feel like they can't be themselves genuinely here in this space. Maybe outside of the space, they start to get a little undercover, but here they can be whatever they want to be, wear whatever they want, and we love it, and we encourage that. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast that focuses on the realities of a career in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. And each week I talk with fellow artists who share their own challenges and setbacks and what they've done to overcome them. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the monthly Win Me newsletter. It'll let you know about upcoming guests, fill you in on how to get special bonus episodes, and give you a peek behind the curtain of this podcast. So sign up today at whyillnevermakeit.com. Research has shown that children who perform, whether singing, dancing, acting, are four times more likely to exceed academically compared with their non-performing schoolmates. Not to mention the cognitive and creative benefits as well as inner confidence that comes from being in the arts. Scholastic is the world's largest publisher and distributor of children's books. And a recent article on their website talks about how the performing arts benefits kids. From the ability to think quickly on their feet and work through unexpected situations, to dealing with anxiety and building self-esteem. The performing arts provide so many skills and life lessons for children of any age. I mean, as George Bernard Shaw said, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. And my guests today are certainly staying young as they train up the next generation of young theater artists. Hello, my name is Monica Roselle. I am owner and artistic director of Moonami Productions, which is a fine arts conservatory in South Miami, Florida. I direct musicals and teach acting to young actors from the age of three all the way to 25. Hello, my name is Priscilla Blanco and I am the music director here at Moonami. I teach voice lessons and piano lessons and I am also the music director for all the musical productions that we do throughout the year. You'll be hearing from Priscilla a little bit later, but my conversation begins with Monica, who holds both a Master of Fine Arts and a Bachelor of Arts. She's taught script analysis and theater history and has been both a private acting coach as well as director of many musicals and plays in South Florida. While Moonami Production focuses on stage work and musicals, they also produce short films with their students, who are receiving highly structured and individualized instruction. And this really sets Moonami apart from most other theater schools for young artists. 
Uh, we're the only, one of the only fine arts conservatories that's structured like a BFA, um, a college conservatory, where we have kids coming in for private and small group lessons, but the group lessons aren't 20, 30, 40 kids. It's between three and five kids. So everyone gets a, you know, a very private, tailorly made lesson plan for what they need, their strengths, their weaknesses. You know, we really work on bringing in kids who want to do this. So I would say like 90, 95% of our kids are kids ready to go in either to magnet schools, colleges, or getting agents to be in musical theater or acting or dancing. Um, it's not sort of an extracurricular activity. This isn't like, you know, I love playing soccer, so I'm going to play soccer. This is this is the deal. You know, parents come to us and they're like, we our kids want this and we have no idea how to do this. Help us. You know, where do we get the agents? Where do we get the training? Where can we film? And I also think that, you know, we rent theaters here in Miami. So we've had the pleasure of working in different theaters and with professional lighting designers and sound designers, set designers. Um, so the kids really get a, a, an intimate look of what it would be like if they were on Broadway. You know, a tech week of 10 to 12 hours. Um, hearing our production manager talk, you know, tech lingo and, and really being ready to perform and responsible, understanding where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be, what costume changes. Like, we're not here for camp. It's not fun. This is, you know, we're professional. People have paid to watch our show. And so we want to put out a good product. So while your bachelor's is in theater arts and your master's is in dramaturgy, you've certainly branched out beyond those fields with Moon and Me. In what ways have you grown since those initial studies and trainings that you've had? Well, I've had to learn a lot about set design and lighting because I'm a huge collaborator with my contractors, my independent contractors. So I really love to sort of create the ideas of what my shows will look like and then go in with um, inspo pictures or even sketches that I do and then talk to them. So I've had to learn the lingo of technical theater because um, I was just, you know, acting and directing. Um, I was the artistic side of it. So now I'm, I'm really getting a hang of understanding the kind of mics that we need and the lights that we need and, you know, talking to the head carpenter on what tools, materials, how much things cost, you know, logistically. Um, the business side of theater, as well as the technical side, I've had to master in the last few years. Yeah, I would imagine it's something that us actors are having to go through ourselves with regards to self-tapes. Yeah. Because instead of just going into a room and mm -hmm. it being taken care of, there with casting directors, we're now having to to film everything, be the, the lighting and set design and, and everything, you know, with regards to the technical aspects. I assume that that's also been a big part of your training as well for, for these students. Absolutely. When we do pre-screens for colleges, especially now in the time of COVID, everything has been online. So they're coming to me and they're like, we don't know how to film ourselves, what camera to use, the lighting, the sound, you know, what should I wear? What should my makeup look like? I don't want to look washed out. I don't want to look too caked up. So it's a lot of things that they weren't really aware of before when they were just going in person and, and meeting people and the personality was showing through more than just what they were seeing on a screen. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about camera is that, and, and also kind of divides the theater from on-camera work, you know, TV, mm -hmm. film, that kind of thing, is that subtleties 
are just amplified on a screen that you may not get in a room. You know, a breath may do a lot more when you're close up on a camera than in a big audition room. So it's those little things that almost in some ways have nothing to do with theater, but certainly with COVID and a lot of Zoom presentations, this kind of more intimate and close-up theater is becoming more the norm. Yeah, I have a lot of students now who are graduating from their BFAs and they joke around. They're like, we're not getting an education in musical theater. We're getting an education in self-tapes. Like, this is what we're doing now. This is every class. We're just having to, you know, film ourselves singing, dancing, acting, whatever it is. But it's, you know, it's the new norm. So you just have to sort of adapt. And we've all had to adapt to it, especially teaching arts through a computer virtually has been really difficult. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. And there's certainly the technical aspect that we've been talking about, but what do you find to be the number one struggle of younger actors as opposed to older actors who may have been in the business a while? I think it's not taking things so personally. They are really open-minded to criticism. They're so open-minded to getting direction. They want to learn. They're hungry. You know, they want to be the best. And not in a competitive way and just like I want to know what my potential is and I want to get there so that when I'm in college, when I'm in front of an agency, I can be really confident because insecurities are incredibly high at this age, right? 14, 15, 16-year-olds not only dealing socially with bullying at school, bad skin, my body image, weight, my parents, you know, all of this stuff that goes into just your personality and anxieties throughout the day, now you're adding, well, you're going to be judged for the rest of your life in this career. Like this is what you're going into. So they really have a huge open mind when they're in the room with us, whether it's working on auditions or in rehearsals, they're just, you know, absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. Anything else, anything else I can do, please just tell me, you know, what can I work on? Give me more versus I feel like adult actors, they're set in their ways. They've been doing this a really long time. It's a rhythm now. And so you don't have as much give and take, I feel, than when you're working with younger kids. And I could be totally wrong. I could be totally wrong about that because I work with children. But <laughs> no, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about that because there is a certain familiarity with the business, with the the acting, you know, when, and, and we get stuck in, in our ways. I know that when it comes to a certain comedic script or dramatic script, I kind of have my way. It's like, this is how I'm going to present this. This is my go-to for this. Right. So the older you get, the more of those go-tos or default settings you have, where as you're getting students just figuring out what those processes are. Yeah. And, you know, I've been doing this now for 15 years and I find myself, you know, in every show that I direct, I always talk to my musical director, Priscilla. I always say this one has to be different. This next show has to look completely different, feel completely different. I have to push myself because I don't want to get complacent. I don't want things to feel like, oh, yeah, Monica, Monica directed that show. It's the same right? I want it to just have a different vibe every time. And that way, artistically, I'm, I'm pushing myself. And if it flops, it flops. If it doesn't, wonderful. I've found this new way of, of telling stories. Um, but yeah, totally, as an, as an adult, to get complacent, especially when you're doing the same thing over and over again for so many years. As Monica mentioned, Priscilla is really her right-hand collaborator when it comes to teaching the students and putting on their productions. 
Her bachelor's and master's degrees are in music education, and she works as a vocal coach and accompanist throughout South Florida. She was also in the public school system there and was the president of the Dade County Music Educators Association. But her work has gone beyond just Florida. She is also the co-founder of Spark Music Initiative, a nonprofit based in Grand Cayman that focuses on introducing and igniting students' interest in music through free workshops and camps that focus on world music, technology, improvisation, and songwriting. And the work she does as music director at Moonami is actually pretty similar. Basically, my job entails teaching the music to the students, putting together the orchestra, rehearsing them, getting a sits probe going. In terms of the private lessons, my biggest goal really is to teach them healthy technique and to challenge them to help their voice grow and their range grow in a way where they feel confident with their voice. So do you pick musicals that match the abilities of the students or ones that tend to stretch their potential? Uh, In general, what we try to do is we try to make sure that we select musicals and material productions that are definitely going to challenge the student. Um, I like to think of it almost like uh, things that can be learned in a very basic level, and then we continue to add the more challenging aspect to it as we go along. Um, So definitely a piece that's going to help the student kind of feel like, hey, I can... I might not be able to sing that B flat right now, but pretty soon I will because I'm working towards it, right? Um, And I think that's the most important aspect of picking material for kids. Um, A lot of the time we worry that it's going to be too hard for them. Um, And I don't think that there's anything that that can be too out of reach if the student has the right tools. Um, And and, uh, when it comes to, to... shows, we definitely try to pick stuff also that's going to showcase the student and highlight them in in the best way possible where their strengths are really uh, highlighted, Um, as opposed to putting them in a place where they might not feel like, oh, I couldn't sing this part. I couldn't, you know, dance this because it was so hard and I suck. It's like, actually, you you just weren't ready to be there yet. Um, And when it comes back around, when we do another production, uh, they have the skill set, and now they can tackle on that that more challenging role. And what's one of those ways that you kind of went down one path and realized, oh, that's not going to work, and you had to try something else? Um, so I think what's difficult when we're doing children's theater is that everyone has an expectation of what it should look like or what it should be. And there's a lot of copycatting. Like, it needs to look like the Broadway show. And I go completely against that. And so there are times where people are like, what, you're going to do Hunchback with 15-year-olds? You're crazy. So it's a lot of pushback from, like, people around me or, you know, parents will trust me implicitly. But I do get the, like, this is not going to be that great. So, you know, we did Newsies and everyone was expecting it to look like Broadway Newsies. And I was like, no. We're going to make it, you know, I had the newspapers of that time period be the silhouette of the New York skyline. And it was very abstract and a little more artistic. And people were like, oh, are you sure? Even my set designer was like, this is cool, but I don't know if it will read. It's a big Disney musical. Are you sure you want to play it this artistic? And I was like, absolutely. We just came off of doing 
um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was so um, detailed in, you know, the set design and the costuming. I just want this to feel really fun. I want this to be like a Disney cartoon. And it worked and everyone loved it. But it was a huge risk, you know. So I think that I'm lucky that I have a really open-minded audience and my kids are so talented that they can pull off anything. It could be a huge spectacle like Peter Pan where we had flying and an actual animal on stage. We had a real dog, a German shepherd on stage as Nana. I will never do that again. (laughs) And then you can do something so intimate like Chicago and have the audience be the same excited, the same, you know, just connecting with the performances. And that's that's what's so fun about, I think, working with kids because they trust me implicitly. You know, if I said we're going to do paper bags this entire show, they'd be like, amazing. We're going to rock paper bags. Let's do this. How are we going to do this? You know, they just they just trust me. Sometimes the students are are great at acting and they may kind of dip their toe into the singing part. How do you kind of bring them over <laughs> to your side, so to speak? Yeah, uh, sometimes we have students who just want to, you know, come in and they'll like say, hey, I just want to take an acting lesson or, hey, I just want to do dance. And little by little, they start to hear other students who sing um, or they they hear about the experience, you know, talking to their friends about what it's like to take a voice lesson, um, their journey in that. And sometimes they'll feel more confident because they see that their friend is doing it. Um, and other times just, you know, Monica will hear a kid and be like, hey, I think this kid could probably, you know, uh, use a couple of voice lessons because I hear a voice in there. And we kind of just, uh, you know, try it out with the student. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that singing is this it's just sustained speech. Right. So going back to the speaking voice, like making it seem very approachable for the student who may not necessarily have experience in this. Um, I like to start with like, first, we're going to talk, then we're going to talk on a specific pitch, then we're going to sustain that pitch. And now suddenly we're singing. So that way they're not afraid to kind of venture into to singing. I have a lot of students who will come to me scared. Um, they'll, they'll, they won't even open their mouth sometimes to sing. And I, I try not to push them too much at first. And then once you start building a rapport with them and they start trusting you, they start trusting the process, then I think that they're okay with making sounds with their voice. Another aspect is that I, I like to kind of show them that, hey, sometimes I crack too. I'm not perfect. <laughs> you know, um, Sometimes I'll miss a note or I'll forget a word or whatever. And seeing how human I can be and how I can also make mistakes, even though I'm the professional teaching them. I think that to them makes it feel like, okay, the stakes are a little bit lower. I I can actually accomplish this. So, and that's really rewarding. And once they get past that hurdle, then we can kind of focus on real technique things like their resonance and, and their breath support and placement and all these other, other things that really help polish up the voice. And of course, some of your students must be, you know, they're naturally gifted towards singing and that is their forte. That's what they do best. And maybe the acting isn't quite so much. So how do you steer your students toward the acting side so that they're not just a good voice? Yeah, I, I definitely have students like that. Um, like, let's say a student who comes in, who's an extremely awesome singer, who who has this natural ability to do 
you know, any kind of song, any style. Um, but then there's always like that one little thing that's missing. Um, and I think that that's where the, the emotion and the intention of how you deliver a performance, um, where the acting component really works, uh, and, and helps out. Um, I like to, to kind of have those students get some notes from Monica when they, when they learn songs, um, and they have it like technically like in a good place. They'll go to Monica, she'll give him some acting notes, they'll come back and suddenly they have a different approach and a different sound because now they're connecting to the storytelling. They're connecting to what they feel with the character. Um, it's almost like, uh, for example, you listen to like a recording by Bernadette Peters um, singing anything really. And there obviously there are moments where technically it's not the cleanest, you know, it's very raw sometimes, but you always know exactly what she's feeling. And I, I always tell my students, I'm like, if you can, if you can achieve that, where you move me as a listener, you move the audience, then I think we we're, we're on the money. Um, and the technicality of it being, you know, really, you know, as close to perfect as possible, that's just like the icing on the cake, you know? Yeah. I think you do a great job of that. And you know, my acting classes just introduce them to as much playwrights, you know, as many playwrights as possible, as many plays as possible. I want you to have this knowledge so that when you're with a director or a casting agent and they're talking about plays, you're not like, what? Who's that? I have no idea who this person is, right? Who's Sarah Rule? Oh, she, that's, oh, okay. I've heard of that monologue. No, I want them to understand who these amazing playwrights are, what their work is, um, script analysis is incredibly important for me as an actor, the same way that Priscilla talks about understanding counts, sight reading. You know, when you're here, when you're acting with me, I want you to be able to look at a script and, and, and analyze it on your own. Where are the beats? Where can we find a great monologue for you? It, it changes your voice and it changes how you sound when you connect to a, a piece that requires you to act. And I think once the student finds that, oh yeah, actually I, I should work on this a little bit more because I did it, it felt different to perform that. It felt good, <laughs> and it's and it's it, it, it's because you find the fun in it now. Um, I, I think that you know I, I have students who who are required to to come in and take a voice lesson because of their choir program, for example, and. And they might, you know, be great at sight reading and like, they'll be great at like, you know, navigating through the range of their instrument. But there's this disconnect to what they're singing about. And and that's where I feel like, you know, acting really kicks it up a notch. <laughs> now, as far as your background, you've worked in the public school system for many years. And oftentimes school districts, they have to consider reducing or actually cutting the arts and music programs from their curriculum. For you and your experience, what is that specific benefit that you've seen in, in having arts and music available to young students? Personally, for me, I think it provides perspective. Perspective of experiences that you may not necessarily know about. Perspective about uh, someone else's culture, background. For me, I was raised in a very conservative, religiously conservative and culturally conservative household. So I'm so thankful that I had the arts to kind of expose me to what's really out there. 
and to really interact with someone who has a different viewpoint than I do, because that's where the the most rich learning comes from. The the things that we actually like hold on to and remember the most are the things that are connected to us intrinsically. And when we cut an arts program from a school, you're cutting away the ability for a student to be able to connect with another human being. That's something also that I've noticed because I, I work at an improv theater. I notice that sometimes adults even have a hard time just looking at each other in the eyes and like having a moment of like, I connected with this human being. And I feel like what other platform really gives you that ability to have a connection with a person and like kind of feel what that person is feeling? Nothing else really but the arts. And that's a way that people learn because we have different modalities. You know, maybe uh, a student is more musically intelligent. Maybe a student is more emotionally intelligent. And the school is doing a disservice to the student if you don't provide those other avenues of learning. The teacher themselves is is doing a disservice to the student if you do not facilitate and kind of adjust what you are teaching to fit those needs and fit those learning styles. So I'm a big believer in that these arts programs, especially in public schools, need to exist. And I think that once you have a little bit of perspective, you learn how to coexist with people. You learn how to even if we have different viewpoints and I might not necessarily agree with everything that you believe, at least I understand how you feel. And that's the most relatable thing because we've all experienced happiness. We've all experienced joy or sadness or anger. If we can relate at that level, then at least that's like step one. Right. Um, And then we don't necessarily have to agree on like religious things or political things, but uh, I, I understand you as a human and you understand me as a human and like math can't really do that for you. So English <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but when you're actively performing it, that's the most rewarding. How difficult is it to incorporate that acting, the, the character development into the, the musical elements and, and singing part? I think that both Monica and I, when we work together, it's it's really like a, a team effort in terms of the storytelling aspect of the song and also the technical side of it. So um, for me, it's really important for a student to understand that your voice is almost like a vehicle to help express the emotion, the intention of the character, um, and and to and all these things combined help us tell the story of this moment. Um, so I think that both Monica and I do a great job of kind of instilling that into our students, that it's not just about singing the right notes um, at the right time. It's about the telling the right story. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's easy to think children only have a certain skill set or no, we can't do this thing they don't understand. That's too advanced. Don't even try it. Sondheim, forget it, Priscilla. Never, right? But we don't see them as as that. We see them as young, intelligent adults. You know, children are so resilient. And if you treat them like they're incredibly smart and they can do it, they do it. They're so wonderful at working hard enough to get there. Um, So I do, I read plays with them like Last Days of Judas Iscariot. And that's a, you know, those are big shows. We did a a play reading of um, Sarah Rule's Eurydice and, you know, with my 15, 16 year olds. 
And yeah, it took like five months to work on, but they did it and they did it beautifully. And I would be so proud to show that anywhere, you know? So I think that we don't have the mindset of limiting the education. We just keep giving them as long as they ask for it, right? We see what they can do and we just keep going. And I think that that's one of the important things that both of you are doing is that you are getting these artists at such a young age, at, at the very beginning of, of their journey on whatever this path is going to be for them within the performing arts. And it's, and it's so important to foster creativity, encourage artistic expression. But at the same time, as a profession, the performing arts, it just isn't suited to everyone's personalities or even talents. Do you, do you have students that through your program may realize, well, maybe this isn't for me as far as a career? Yeah. So what's so interesting is I'm that person. I went into college and I was like, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be on TV, in movies. And then as I took lessons, I fell in love with directing. I fell in love with playwriting. I realized I was much, I was able to be more creative as a director. And I had wonderful mentors like Vince Cardinal and Steven Svoboda who were like, hey, have you tried dramaturgy? And then exploring that side and then realizing that I was a great teacher and I really enjoyed that part of it, you know, and really carving out my niche in this industry where before it was like very focused on if I'm successful, I must be this thing. I must be an actor on TV. But then I realized my success was could be more than just that thing. So when we talk to students who come in who love this, I have that conversation with them. I'm like, success is seen, it's so much more than just being on that Broadway stage, you know? And it could be that's your success and that's a wonderful aspiration, but there's so much more to being an artist and, and being in theater than just that one thing, right? That one track mind. And with the students that you, you've worked with, obviously there's varying talent levels, various commitment levels. Some are doing it because they're required to do it. Others are coming to it just because they, they love being on stage. How do you guide students in a way that brings out their best without discouraging them, you know, based upon their own limitations or, or this or that? I never say no. You know, when you're in a classroom, and I see this a lot with, with my students, if they make a mistake, immediately it's, oh, I'm so sorry. That was, I'm so sorry. And I tell them, never be sorry, right? What you do here is so important. It's so wonderful. You can do anything that you want to do. If you want to be on Broadway, yes. If you don't, great. But understand that you are the architect of your life, right? So I think having those you know, the, you know, manifesting, those kind of conversations with children is so important. Life is really difficult, and I'm not the person to tell them that the reality is it's, diff you know, it's hard. There's a lot of tears and a lot of hard work in this room when they're here. I am responsible to make, to, to um, cultivate their dreaming, right? I want them to be as optimistic as possible with their future. I don't want to set those limits. Obviously, if I have students that are ready to go to, you know, their conservatories or they have agents, I'm going to talk to them about the realities of body image, what's going to happen, right? Not taking things too personally when they're in an audition room and someone says things about what they look like. But really, I'm here. I'm like a fairy, 
I just want to give you all the good energy and make you think that you can do anything that you can, that you want to do as long as you're working for it. You know, if you're working hard, the universe is going to give that right back to you. So I never say no to my students. I never say that's not realistic. You're never going to be in a show with Sutton Foster. That's ridiculous. You know, why would you ever squash on a kid's dreams like that? You know, so that's my job, keeping those dreams alive, keeping that ambition alive, because I know sometimes that family members or teachers at, you know, other schools in, in either academic teachers or arts teachers and other programs will tell them, you know, certain things that sort of discourages them from pursuing pursuing their dreams. Right. I think that making the the lesson or the show or whatever it is that we're working on the, the piece of music making it enjoyable in the moment um i'm not seeking perfection from day one i think that a lot of students have this idea of the relationship with teachers that the teacher is above and then the student is is below and the teacher informs the student where i see myself more as a facilitator so i i like to give the student the tools and the autonomy to be able to use the tools um, for them to really create their their own interpretation of, of the work, for them to really discover how to develop an artistic voice. That's something that I feel sometimes in schools, because you're, they, they deal with large amounts of students at the same time, is really challenging to be able to accomplish. Um, but the idea of having an artistic voice is something that kids sometimes aren't given the opportunity to develop. Usually uh, they'll be taught how to do something by rote and they'll told, they'll be told, okay, stand here, do this movement, then sing this here, then go over here, move down three steps. And it's like, well, where's the room for creativity then? Um, where's the room for them to really express uh, how they feel in that moment? Because when you do, when you sing a song and and or, or you do a scene that's emotional uh, it's going to feel different every time you do it you're in a different place as a human each each day right so um being able to kind of uh, adapt to what's happening in your environment and adapt to what's needed for this character in this moment i think is 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 part of teaching the student how to find their own autonomy when it comes to performing. Um, many times if the student just learns something by rote and they forget one, one word or one movement, that's it. Everything crumbles, right? It's like the end of the world. Oh my gosh. And it's not perfect anymore. When in reality, that's that one little moment that, that we made a little tiny mistake isn't what this whole thing is about. Um, and also learning how to recover from those moments, I think is crucial which it goes back to, again, you being confident that you have the power to choose when you're on stage, um, how to how to handle those things. Yeah. Something that you can't achieve if you just learned it word for word, movement by movement. And it's almost like robotic, you know? 100%. I always, right before a show opens, we get in our beautiful family circle, good energy, right? Right before we get on stage. And the only thing I say to them is... I am so proud of you. Now forget everything we've taught you and have fun. Who cares if you miss the line, the blocking, the quick change? I don't care. I want you to experience these characters and tell this story as best as you can. And if those 
if, if there's an obstacle that goes against it, forget about it. If you can't make your quick change, bye. That's fine, right? Just have fun. Because if it's not fun, then why are you going to do it? I always say if my job ever gets you know, mundane or I'm not having fun anymore, I'm going to stop teaching. I'm going to stop directing because no one wants a bitter teacher, right? No one wants an unhappy director. That doesn't help anyone, right? I'm the captain of the ship and I have to sort of set the tone. And if I'm not feeling great, my people aren't going to feel great. So that's, that's what it's about. Like we're not perfect. It's not that deep. It's really not that deep. We're here to bring joy. We're here to tell stories and and bring, right? We always say that, P. We're always saying, it's not that deep, you guys. Stop crying. It's fine. <laughs> You're going to be fine. And because we're not like a musical theater factory, there's so many um, children's theater that will do like seven, eight, nine, ten shows a year. And for me, I'm not about that. I would rather take five, six months out of the year and put on a spectacular show and just maybe do one or two every year, then have 10 not great, you know, products. So, and I feel like the time that we spend gives the kids that confidence of like, oh, we got this, right? And even if we mess up, that's okay because we're enjoying all of this hard work that has now culminated to this moment in time. And that actually leads to one of the questions, because you you did mention that you present them with as professional an atmosphere as possible, which it certainly sounds like you're trying to balance that quality production, but also with that with that fun and childlike wonderment that should come from artistic expression. And you mentioned the the long rehearsal process that goes into each of your productions. And I was wondering how you settled upon these four or five month rehearsal processes when certainly in the professional world, it can be as little as 10 days, you know? And so how do you balance that such a long rehearsal process with what really isn't to happen, you know, once they get into the business? So for me, it, those five or six months are more about training the talent than rehearsing for the show, Right. If the more I train them in the rehearsal room, no matter how long it takes here at Munami, when they're out into the professional world, because they've gotten so good at taking direction, at being ready, you know, whatever it is that they're learning, I know that they can do it on the spot, right? I've had so many kids go to Broadway um, auditions and the casting directors will be like, how, who trained you? You are just like on, you're ready, you're going, you take direction really well. How is this possible? You're 10 years old, right? And I really think that it's because we take the time when we're doing our shows to have that training, right? We don't need to rush because, you know, that's that's the beauty of being in a conservatory. It's the safe space to learn and grow without the anxiety of time and pressure and people criticizing you. Coming from your background, I mentioned it earlier about the studies you've been. Part of that studying was a four-month Shakespeare intensive that you did in England. Now, do you get to work Shakespeare with a lot of your students? Most of my students, as soon as they're like 14 years old, I start to introduce it to them. My high school kids, especially my college students who are taking Shakespeare classes, um, it's a requirement for a lot of BFA programs. And we do that. Um, not everyone likes it. It's sort of like pulling teeth. 
But what I do is I try and make it as accessible as I can. So I really try and start with like the more um, popular ones, you know, Midsummer, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth. Um, I love to show the kids the Broadway version because I have Broadway HD, the Broadway version of Romeo and Juliet with Orlando Bloom that I had seen live that I absolutely loved. It was such a great take on it. Um, I'll show them the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, the Baz Luhrmann one, just so that they can see that, you know, the words are difficult, but these are stories that we're telling every day. It's about love and loss and friendships and enemies. And that's about it. You know, it's the same thing that you're watching on Netflix to all the boys you love, you know, all those like fun rom-coms. That's what you're reading in Shakespeare. It sounds a little different, but it's the same idea. And that's where all these stories come from. So I try and make it less intimidating for them. You know, we're not here to be... um, PhDs and Shakespeare. So I don't want to give them all of this like analysis and that one word and what those colors mean, because then they lose interest and they don't want to keep learning. But if you give it to them in small doses and you make it accessible, then they start to love it. Yeah. Two of the previous guests I've had on the podcast were a part of that Orlando Bloom, Romeo and Juliet production. And uh, one was Justin Guarini, American Idol, the other Jeffrey Owens from The Cosby Show and other TV and films. And it just goes to show that anyone within the arts can find a way, an avenue into Shakespeare, which can seem very inaccessible. But really for any artist, getting down, as you said, to the basic level of, of storytelling and character development, that's the same no matter what script or project you're working on. Yeah, and it's a hero's journey. Whatever, whatever Shakespeare that you're reading, it's a hero's journey. And so if, if you make it fun for the kids and you show them that it's just like anything else they've ever read, it's a Hunger Games, you know, then, then they'll love it. It's difficult. It is. It's, the hour feels like three sometimes because they're just like, why does he have to talk this way? This is so ridiculous. Why can't you just say, I love you? Why does it take five pages? <laughs> You know, and I have to explain it to them like there was no Netflix back then. Theater was the only entertainment. So, yes, they were in theater for five hours and they loved it. And it was exciting because everything was so poetic and so descriptive. And that's what made it so fun. And that's why we still read it in 2021. When it comes to the considerations of teaching students, there's different ages that you have, different cultures, different backgrounds, the, the, the parents themselves and how they want to raise their kids. These are all things that you have to consider in the types of musicals that you do, the types of stories that you want to tell. How do you balance that and, and bring together all these various different cultures and backgrounds and experiences of the students? Well, I think it influences the shows that I choose. Obviously, Chicago was for our high school students, mostly junior, seniors, college students. Um, And we did the high school edition. If there's ever a show that I do, like we did Peter Pan, I edit it a little bit in like the native, in the insensitivity of like Native American references. Um, So in that, I'm really careful about the content that I teach them. When it comes to casting, I'm very upfront with my parents. I let them know that I cast the person that I know is going to do the best job in the role. And I would never put a kid on stage in front of 1,500 people 
to do a bad job. That's embarrassing and it's traumatizing to be a kid not feeling 100% in the character that you're playing. I would never put that pressure on a kid forming, you know, their confidence, especially if they love it so much because then they're never going to want to do it again. You know, so throwing someone into a lead role who isn't ready, that's disaster. It's a lot of anxiety. And I really want to nurture these kids so that they want to keep doing this because life is hard. This industry is really hard. And so getting to do it at this age in this conservatory should feel fun and safe. So that's a big thing that I tell all my parents. We always have a parent meeting before shows and I sort of break down my rules. This is how I'm going to cast. You will not change my mind. If that's not what you appreciate, then, you know, there's other places that you can go to, but my what I'm choosing is is to protect your children and the integrity of the art that we're about to do. Right. I think that the most important thing is that the teacher, the the leader sets the example. So Monica and I really do a great job of modeling that for the students. We may not always agree on everything, but we can always communicate and we can always find a common place where we can get the work done. And and I think that's so valuable to see for students to see, hey, they didn't necessarily think or say the same thing, but they're still best friends and they're still collaborators. And um, and that's a huge skill to have, uh, especially nowadays, you know, with with how the world is is hap- is unfolding. <laughs> it's really easy for for a student to go online and see people just like battling out against each other on opposing views when all you have to do is kind of just listen. Um, so we've created this environment here at Munami where we try to make a space for everyone to feel welcomed, respected that people are listening to what you need, to how you feel, and and to also just be be willing to kind of roll with the punches. You know, sometimes things may not go the way you want, um, but it's not necessarily about that, the individual, it's about the greater uh, goal. And really our greater goal is to get a beautiful story to be told, right? Um, and I think going back to that reminder of like, what's important is that we're telling a beautiful story. I also think that our a huge thing that we say is you are responsible for the energy that you bring into this room, right? And so what you're bringing in from wherever you are is going to contaminate this like beautiful space of creativity. So you have to really be mindful of the words that come out of your mouth. And so at home, your rules can be, you can probably say the word hate at home, but here in this room, that's not allowed. You know, so it's just getting them to understand that we have certain rules that might not be applied at home and they should still respect it. And that's okay. Yeah, it's finding that balance of of respecting their parents' wishes, respecting their cultures, but then also telling the story, you know, regardless of, of, uh, of where they come from, they need to work together as this ensemble, as this, uh, this acting and singing troupe to convey the story and the characters. And it's cool to see kids adapt to that because, you know, we have, you know, some of our Jehovah's Witnesses, they can't celebrate birthdays or they choose not to celebrate birthdays. And so when we have birthdays, kids are really mindful about not saying certain things in front of them, you know, 
or during the holidays, our Jewish students, like everyone's so mindful to be like, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, what, you know, whatever it is that we celebrate, we just love each other. Thank you. You know, our, our LGBTQ students, same thing. There's never a moment where they feel like they can't be themselves genuinely here in this space, maybe outside of the space you know, they start to get a little undercover, but here they can be whatever they want to be, wear whatever they want, and we love it, and we encourage that. Both Monica and Priscilla certainly brought that same openness and collaborative positivity to our conversation. In full disclosure, I used a different online service than Zoom to conduct this interview, and, well, let's just say it did not go as planned. There were several instances where we needed to go back and re-record this answer or that question, and at one point Priscilla's entire audio track was gone, requiring her to stick around longer as I basically interviewed her again and had to then edit all of her answers back into the conversation. (laughs) Fun, fun, let me tell you. So needless to say, lesson learned. I'll just stick with Zoom and be very happy for the service and quality that they provide. Now, if you're curious of the name of the online recording service that I used that caused so much trouble, well, it was Zencaster. They honestly created a why I'll never make it moment, and it was only due to the willingness, understanding, and patience of Monica and Priscilla that today's episode even happened. All right, thank you so much, ladies. This has been great. It's so nice to meet both of you. And whenever I'm down in South Florida again, I'll definitely let you know. But uh, yeah, this was so great. And I'm so glad that you took some time out to talk about your program. I loved it. This was so fun. <laughs> if we ever get to do a show again, you have front row seats. Love it. I, I would You'll love, love that. it. You'll absolutely love it. Also, I greatly appreciate you joining our conversation. Now, if you know someone who you think could benefit from this episode, please share the Why I'll Never Make It podcast with them. Now, there is no final five episode with Monica and Priscilla this week. However, I did ask Monica about audition stories and getting her perspective on what it's like behind the table in the audition room. Audition Stories is yet another bonus episode available to members of this podcast who join as a WinMe artist. So go to join.whyillnevermakeit.com to learn how you can support this podcast and get a slew of bonus episodes like Audition Stories and The Final Five. A link to that is also provided in the show notes. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Music in this episode is provided by Bortex. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time with actress, singer, and Broadway dresser, Kimberly Faye Greenberg, as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. <laughs>